this computer. Welcome back, everybody, to the Blame the Internet podcast. This is episode two. Um, episode one, we rambled on a bit, uh, just trying to get a little bit of feel for this whole podcast thing, slash um, getting to know each respective esport a little bit better. Um, so for this this episode, we're looking to be a little more structured. Uh, we're going to start off with a little weekly update for each of the esports that we cover, and then move on a little forward to talking about the topic today, which is tier one versus tier two teams, and just kind of going through some of the strategy differences. Uh, for example, being that like there's amateur and professional level teams within each respective esport, and sometimes amateur teams end up being a little bit more creative with some like strategies and such. So we're just going to talk about some of the pros and cons related to that, and then we're going to end with just some uh, some hot takes on the scene. So uh, Noah, do you want to start off with uh, with Smash? Uh, yeah, definitely. So one of the biggest pieces of news in um, terms of Smash Bros is. Evo 2020, one of the biggest fighting game tournaments um, in the world, actually went online um, earlier this uh, month. And following that, they actually dropped Smash Bros. Ultimate from their lineup due to its poor netcode, which basically means that a professional organization recognizes the, the flaws and fallbacks with the online system that Smash Bros. uses, so much so that they won't even host a tournament um, under the jurisdiction, which is a big shocker for the Smash Bros. community. Um, following this, MKLeo, the known number one Smash Bros. player in the world, actually quit professional Smash Online due to its poor netcode and frustrations with the game. Um, so it's really interesting to see all the pushback. When you say netcode, what do you mean by that? So netcode is basically how they operate on their um, platform with 1v1s. I don't know too, too much about it, but basically... Uh, the issue is a lot of fighting game communities, their servers kind of, um, if there's any sense of lag or something's not responding, they'll take an educated guess. Their programs will just guess that an opponent jumped or moved slightly left, slightly right. And what that does, it allows the game to run a lot more smoother. And if the guess was incorrect, the game will recognize that a split second later and will adjust accordingly. But that tends to be like not very noticeable. But in Smash Bros, they don't have that option. So if there is any sense of lag or something's not responding properly, the game will freeze or lag. Um, so that's something that other communities, other programs have been using to um, try to mitigate lag. But with Smash Bros Online, they don't have that type of um, connection or type of system where it, it will mitigate or limit the amount of lag. And that tends to cause a lot of problems. In addition to that, if you have anybody spectating, they're not a third party they're an active member engaging in it. So if you have two people trying to commentate and they're from the other side of the world, their connection now has a factor in the smoothness of the game. They're not really watching people play their active third parties, uh, which causes a lot more issues as well. Oh God. <laughs> That's pretty tough. Yeah. So in the CS world, um, the first major qualifier just ended and Astralis took it for the European region and new team on the scene, Gen G took it for the North American region. Um, in other news though, a ton of the tier two pros and NA are fleeing to Valorant. Um, and we'll touch upon that later, but that's been a huge hit for North America in general. Um, 
in terms of League of Legends, the only big news is that uh, FaZe Clan is interested in buying out a Korean team to start their own team. So that's one of the big story names. So would that, would that be them entering into like the pro circuit similar to what 100 Thieves did? Or is this a different circuit? Uh, yeah, that would be enter- referring to. Yeah, they'd be entering into the pro circuit there. They're trying to start oh, like yeah. a franchise because uh, League is franchised in North America and uh, EU, but they're not franchised yet in China or Korea. So they're, I think FaZe is talking about franchising in Korea and starting their own team. Okay, so it'd be a whole new oh, – a whole – wait, aren't all of the Korean players already playing in the other jurisdictions? They all leave. I mean, the best players in the world are Korean, but they're kind of just – Face uh, thinks there's a big opportunity to join in, and they decided that now's an opportune time with all this stuff going on because, you know, the esports market has taken a little dip recently. So they're going to try to join in, start up a franchise. So it's cheap. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Playing it. Okay. Interesting. Um, speaking of Phase, uh, <laughs> got their origins in Call of Duty. So cover COD real quickly. Uh, so since the last podcast, there are two events. Uh, one being uh, one by the Dallas Empire, which was the LA Open. I'm pretty sure it was LA Open, but it was the LA Invitational. Like I said previously, with the fact that not every single pro team is invited to every single event in COD, which just makes no sense. But they ended up escaping from the fact that the Huntsman and Atlanta Phase were not in the tournament, uh, which are the two other of the top three teams. So they won that one. Um, and then the most recent event was actually this past weekend and it was the Florida, Florida event, I believe. And FaZe took that, uh, pretty convincingly. It was interesting because again, the Empire and the Huntsman were not in the event. So it's again, two of the top three teams are not in the event and the opposite one has won. So now FaZe has two wins, Empire's two wins, Chicago Huntsman have a win and the Mutineers of Florida have a win as well. So the top three is pretty solidified um, at this point. Uh, of course, like there's, there's could be um, – there's two teams in the hunt for the top three, but standings-wise in the long term, I think this will pretty much be pretty settled. Uh, then for like player movement, um, this actually since the last podcast has been a pretty big uh, turnaround in terms of the beginning of the season. It was pretty fixed in terms of rosters. No one was really moving only like the bottom two teams are really shaking up the roster. But then I think people started realizing that the big tournament called champs is coming up and everyone's still chasing like Atlanta phases uh, greatness. So they've been, even the top teams have been making some adjustments like the Chicago Huntsman, which is prior previously optic just dropped gunless. Who is a pretty respected pro in the scene, but he apparently was dropped due to quote vibes. Um, which is which <laughs> something, we could probably touch, something we could touch on later. Well, like, if you listen to the comms, like, they were super – Tika, I remember you said you you watched one of the events. That, like, he's a super mellow guy, and all the other people are pretty upbeat. Um, mm. So I think that kind of just, just took the fun of it out of it for them, even though they're already a top team. So they dropped him. And then they actually picked up this dude on the Mutineers, who's the fourth team in the standings. Uh, who ended up taking a leave of absence from the Mutineers for mental health reasons. And then as soon as he left, they ended up winning the event. 
So then he, like, there's no way they're going to add him back in because it's one without him. But he's, like, really solid, and he's a twin brother of a guy on the Huntsman. So pretty, it made, made sense for him to switch over to their team. Uh, so the Huntsman got better. Um, then lastly, just to touch on the fact that the New York subliners, who in general were, like, a very trash team, like we're talking bottom two in the league, made – a roster move of dropping one of their players, uh, I forget who it was, and then they brought up this guy, uh, Mac, and they've since gone to like placing top four at the last two events, so they're ready to play. Um, it just it just kind of goes to show. We'll talk about a little further on in the podcast about the amateurs coming in and really making a difference because some of those amateur players grind the game harder than the professionals. Um, I think it goes across any sport, and that kind of breeds this competitive advantage for them, especially in a game like COD that's very like cyclical in terms of the every year different cycle that like some of these guys are just better than the pros, even though the pros might have the the edge in the beginning of the game. So that's kind of the COD update. Um, I don't know, Tikan, what other, do you want to cover, was it Valorant? Um, yeah, Valorant. Uh, no pro scene as of yet. Still in the beta. Um, I've been playing it a lot recently. It's strangely addicting. Like coming from CS, it's a lot easier. I'm a lot I better. I thought you that were game. trashing the game last time. No, see, I was trashed when I first started, but now I'm, I'm, I'm like the middling rank. I'm gold two. Uh, it's pretty. It's about average. So you're most, good at it. That's why. Yeah. That's why you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. I like the game now. I'm, I'm better at it than I am at CS. Um, but mostly, most of the pros are, um, they're, they're coming from Overwatch, they're coming from uh, CS, and they're hopping on these like little squads of people they've played with in the past. And if I'm going to be honest here, uh, there's really not much success for them to be found yet. I mean, the biggest tournament to be had was a $25,000 one. Yeah, it's a weird move. Like, there were some players in the COD team that did the same thing for Overwatch. And then within like four or five months, realized this is going. They didn't like. It was like a failed stint. <laughs> yeah. And they went back, so it's interesting to see like whether or not, especially with the whole Fortnite thing, whether or not they'll start to be a trend of these multi-game players that just like hop between. Like it's really popular in console with like Halo and Call of Duty back in the day of players switching back and forth because same thing, controller, similar movements. Um, probably the same going to be with CSGO and Valorant. Uh, Valorant never gets a pro scene. Like, you'll probably see guys, like, go play Valorant for, like, a year or so and then realize yeah. oh, I'm trash and then go have some traction on CS. So I wonder if there'll be more fluidity in the scene with, like, new games spawning up as quickly. Yeah. The only advantage is that with Valorant, Riot Games is such a good developer that they're listening to so many of the players' concerns and they constantly are releasing patches, updating agents, weapons, maps – just adding little things every week and every honestly a couple times a week. Who's too. the head of Riot? I think I listened to a podcast. Uh, uh not sure actually. Um, wasn't it? Um, uh, I don't know why I'm forgetting this, but I remember I listened to a podcast with him on it, and he was just so much about community feedback. Yeah, like it was just priority was community feedback, and you, and it's interesting how. You're saying that it's shining through in Valorant. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, every week we get a new couple hundred megabyte update or even a, couple, a big one when Ranked came out and they've constantly been tweaking it. So I'm excited to see what they keep on doing with it. It's obviously not even close to its final form yet, but it'll be interesting to see. 
Okay, so no no timeline on pro scene, nothing like no buzzing about it. Well, this has yeah. to be the worst time. Like no one's gonna start yeah. a franchise right now. Right. So they're just. I think they're waiting this storm Jeez. out. They got lucky because all the streamers have nothing else to play. So yeah. that's why there was a kids attraction. I can't imagine it's gonna do super well. Like I'm just looking at like yeah, I think it's got the developer support that it needs, but with the time frame in which it's released, like. It's going to lose that. I remember, like, I remember reading something about how, uh, like, the viewership has, like, gradually declined, of course, like, any game since its release. But whether or not that alone will, like, deter people from investing into the, into the scene. Yeah. It's hard think, to say right now. Yeah, I think now, especially when you're, when you're releasing a game like Valorant, it's pretty hard um, because a lot of people right now have nothing better to do than play games to release something that um, is still in beta mode and still not completely finished. Um, because I think a lot of people are expecting like a full-fledged game to play on their free time. And if they're putting a lot of time into something that's not yet complete, it could be um, pretty frustrating. I know there was concerns um, before Rank Mode was out over the fact that there was no real progression or anything like that, um, or anything separating the more casual first-timers from anybody else. Um, and I definitely saw that with my um, limited experience with Valorant. So I think although it is a great time for video games, it's hard to release something that's not uh, fully polished yet. So, yeah, so something we touched on earlier, which sparks our discussion for today about tier one, tier two teams and the players in each of those tiers um, is a bunch of the CS players going, the lower end CS players from North America go, switching over to Valorant. So, I mean, I'm interested to hear, how do you two define tier one and tier two teams or tier one, tier two players um, in terms of like fighting games? Well, yeah, for fighting games, I think it's a little bit different. Um, in terms of the uh, Smash community, which uh, I have uh, a lot more experience on than the others, I know there's a lot more technical characters to play than others. Um, it, the benefit in Smash Ultimate is there's a, a lot of characters that are considered competitively viable, whereas you could win a super major or a major in a tournament with almost any of the roster obviously there's some exceptions to this but um it, it generally technical skills help exceed you as a player if you're playing somebody who's more technologically like advanced in terms of um the precise movements precise speed and all that stuff you definitely see better results but the other side of the coin is the easier characters to play that don't require this are still competitively viable characters uh, such as lucina um Roy, Cloud, and some other ones don't require as precise movements as Pikachu, Joker, and Peach, yet you're seeing people play these characters that take a lot less um, precise movements and do very, very well with them. So it's interesting to see how Tier 1 and Tier 2 are separated because I feel like a lot of that is in your ability to read your opponent and not your ability to actually play the game. Uh, you see a lot of players who tend to struggle in Smash Ultimate because they're stuck doing the same habits and they're not reading the opponent or understanding what the opponent's about to do next. And that's where you see a lot of people um, struggle and perform, underperform and all that stuff and not necessarily. Parent in FPSs or other genres of video games. Yeah. And I think um, especially for like CS, the tier one and tier two is defined as uh, tier one teams are teams that consistently plays top eight at a major. Um, when they show up at a smaller event, they are supposed to always win. Um, 
they tend to dominate the the pro leagues when it's like when they invite a few tier two teams to come play and tier two teams are the teams that fill in the gaps at these big events and are, are supposed to like give the chance to like prove their worth prove their shot and i think this breakdown is um it's interesting for esports in general because you know in the real world that like football for example you have like the patriots and you have the browns and in this world like you know the browns will almost never beat the patriots i can't even remember the last time those two played and the browns even like put up a fighting chance but i feel like in the esports scene there's like a difference where you know a tier two team we hear about upsets all the time yeah um i think that's probably the nature of what i was touching on before about like the ability it's similar to sports though about like athletes putting in an absurd amount of time to get better like no one's like born to be like the best players on the field and like building chemistry and such and when you have like amateur teams you're able to just if you put in the work to a certain extent you have like the basic level of talent like I feel like upsets are just so doable especially in like CS or just like console games or some other PC games where like strategy is a huge factor uh, like out of game strategy like different like in a fighting game where it's more reactive and you're like you're it's you can't really like plan out some sort of like you know what you're doing but you don't, can't really plan out like a, a, some sort of like map attack like a chessboard like these are the moves we're going to make the five of us to come out with a win um especially shines through in like game modes in call of duty for search and destroy and then csgo of course so just um just that 5v5 being able to have a structured defensive offensive play and working on those and and grinding the game super hard sometimes puts the passionate ams over the the professionals. Yeah, it's something I want to touch up upon because you mentioned um, we took a little tangent in athletes. Um, Something that just kind of happened and kind of shook the Smash Ultimate scene is Le'Veon Bell, um, running back for the Jets, actually hosted his own Smash Bros. tournament. And it was one of the, yeah, one of the biggest Smash Bros. tournaments in the world. And not only that, he played in it and came in this, I think, I believe he came in the same place as the number one Smash Bros. player in Smash 4. Somebody who's considered a Smash Bros. professional. And people saw his sets. He was doing really, really well as Mega Man. And I I just thought it was very surprising to see somebody who is not necessarily uh, a video game athlete, um, rather just his own professional athlete in his own field, go into something completely different and like, make his mark you know that's that's crazy in in the cod scene there's only like a handful of pros uh, professional sports figures that are like pretty solid um and they even try to prior like previously when they'll do like land events where they'll invite some local professional sports players to, like team up with pros and like do like show matches uh so for some reason the nba players are like by far the best uh, which is, and like uh, football players I've seen play, just like they like yeah. they have to coach them through how to shoot and say it's like, come on now, like, <laughs> well, like I, I, show matches and it's like, uh, yeah, I think on the same, um, like the, the same thing as as well as they might have like a maybe more difficult time picking something up, but I I feel like once you hit that high of a career in like professional sports, you kind of have that like tenacity and grit and like you have the dedication to something where uh, I feel like you can do a lot more in terms of 
the esports community and, uh, and other communities as well. And I, I feel like that definitely showed Le'Veon Bell. And it'd be interesting to see if any other um, professional athletes go into the competitive esports scene, especially during quarantine, where I, I, they definitely have more time to um, put into something else. But yeah, it, it was just really interesting to see something like that. Yeah, so Noah, um, kind of going back to your point, um, so like a player like MK Leo, now let's, let's ignore the fact that this is online, and we can touch upon that later, because there's a lot more upsets, I think, online than there are on land. Yes. Um, what are the odds of just like, in, like a player beating MK Leo on land? Like he's undisputedly number one in the world right now, right? Who's that, Smash? Yeah, yes. Smash Ultimate. So Is that the guy that quit? He quit online uh, competitive play. Uh, See, like, to me, that's so like I, I, I get it with Smash. Like I, I think that that game inherently has just way too many issues with online play. But, yeah, like, I'm glad that pros and other games are sticking seen, with it. Yeah, you know, because like they all pl- normally play online, yeah. and like it's not like it's still viable. Like of course there's there's variability to it, and you're getting joked and and such, but. Um, it's interesting that the Smash people, like, it's so funny because the community is, like, so small relative to some other esports, and, like, they mm-hmm. still got guys, like, throwing fits about, like, this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean... Maybe it's I, because there isn't, money, like, a serious money into it that people are like, I'm not going to play unless it's viable. Like, they don't have to force themselves to sit down and play because they're on some contract. I, I do believe as well, just given the um, the whole idea of fighting games and stuff like that, a lot of it comes down to reaction time and it's down to the microsecond. So I, I think I'm not, I don't have the exact numbers on it, but um, Smash Bros. runs at 60 frames per second. So each frame is a, a 60th of a second and online with perfect connection, um, you're already missing out on 14 or so frames. And that's like given that it's perfect connection. So you're already losing that edge as a competitive player because you don't no longer have that reaction speed there's combos that no longer work due to the fact that you're missing out on 14 frames. That's like, obviously it's hard to kind of emphasize how important that is um, for people who are unfamiliar with fighting games, but that makes or breaks every single interaction you have online. And I feel like that definitely um, makes it a lot harder. We're talking about tier one, tier two players Um, online. It it really like blurs that, that line. Um, We have a lot of people that, aren't really considered professional um, esports players, at least offline, or have never really been a part of the scene, taking out um, professional esports players. I played somebody in bracket who I got completely destroyed on, and then he went on to beat a lot of other professional Smash Bros. players, like, really, really resoundingly. And I don't think, um, from my knowledge, he had any notable win until now. And uh, that's... I, I. 100% 100% believe that's due to the fact that a lot of people are now only playing online because that's the only option. So now that's where he can get his notable wins. Because before that, I think a lot of professionals don't even consider playing online tournaments or even practicing online because it builds bad habits, uh, at least in the fighting game community. All right. Um, Tikan. Did you want to build off of any of these bullets about these tier one, tier two debate so we can keep that focus on? Um, yeah. So here I'll provide an example of what I kind of mean by like the different strategies. Uh, the other week during one of CS's tournaments, uh, ESL pro league, um, 
Cloud9 would think was playing Evil Geniuses. Evil Geniuses is like top 10 in the world, number two NA. And I saw this flashbang, and it was from across the map thrown by Cloud9. And it completely blinded all of Evil Geniuses right when they were pushing. What and, map? Uh, Overpass. Okay. Yeah, and it has like this tunnel that you all come through to charge onto the B site. Yeah, yeah, and they played th- it. Yeah, and they threw it from A. And it was a, a flashbang that the announcers had never seen before. The commentators were like freaking out about it. Analysts were describing how it worked. And it popped perfectly. And they, they got a team ace like instantly. It wiped out their entire team because the entire team was blinded. So it's, it's so like, cool. And it turns out they did an interview with the guy on Cloud9 afterwards. And he's like, yeah, we, we were just, you know, uh, screwing around, tossing flashbangs. And one of our players on our team, uh, Floppy, found this insane flashbang across the map. And we, he kept on throwing it and practicing it and realized, like, this is, like, a very viable flashbang. So they, they worked it out, practiced it for weeks, and then were able uh, to use it in the game. Dude, I love, I love also when you watch CSGO with those kind of things, how, like, I don't know how to explain it. Um, like, structured those tactics are. It's very different and like, console games feel like oh we're gonna like throw this nade over this building and you're just thinking generally it's gonna go a certain area but with like keyboard and mouse like especially with csgo like you literally stare at the ground look for like this specific dot in the ground <laughs> the one you look in the air and you you put your crosshair on a certain spot of the map in the air and then you have some sort of movement mechanic and release the whatever the tactical or lethal is and I always thought that was, like, so – like, it just made, like – it makes CSGO just levels above other games. The fact that, like, you you can down to literally the the exact position you can land the same tacticals and lethals is so epic. I, I think another yeah. thing to point out on that is, like, that def- I think definitely puts people, like, right ahead in the Tier 1, um, like, designation is there's – anybody can really look at a certain point – look up, find another point and practice that flashbang. But if you're the one who invents that and finds that out and you're the team that pushes a meta like, in a competitive scene, like I feel like that puts you way ahead of a lot of other players and the, the ability yeah. to adapt, find new strategies and not only find new strategies, but working strategies at the top level of competitive play. I, that that puts you leagues ahead of most other players. right? Well, off the so, so that's what's surprising is that these teams that do this, that f- do this first, tend to be the, like the weaker teams in CS at least. I don't know about other really? games. Yeah, Cloud9 is like pretty weak now. They they bought like a tier two roster and you see these a lot. There's another tier two roster that called them Movie Star Riders and there's a spot on the map, I think Inferno, and there's another flashbang and they literally call that flashbang Movie Star after the team because they, they labbed out that flashbang. So I think these, it's like these smaller tier teams, they basically spend so much time finding these gimmicks, these little exploits on the map that help them, you know, get a quick advantage on a, taking a site or finding a free kill or just holding an angle that no one would ever expect to hold. And then tier one teams that adapt under their strategy. Like just last week I saw, um, oh, I forget who it was, but someone in the EU scene, they threw that same exact flashbang uh, that uh, Cloud9 threw a month before, earlier. So it's like they, they just build off these tier two teams. You know what's and, fascinating about that too is the tier two guys generally like some might wonder like, all right, why do they give up some of their 
like they find these really cool flashbang spots. Why do they expose them to the extent they do? Uh, it's almost to get that recognition. Like it's different when you're coming from the tier one and you come up with something new, like you implement it and it works and you keep going. But like when you're in the tier two, like you're trying to broadcast it in a way and it leads to, especially in the COD community, like there'll be a lot of amateurs who will, who are in the beginning of the game, like grind it, come up with these insane spots, sit in private matches all day, which are these lobbies, like people don't understand, like private matches, lobbies outside of the normal games, just you in the lobby and on different maps. And just practice, practice, practice stuff. And then they'll release videos. So they'll release Twitch streams and, and VODs of their new spots. And all the pros have to do is sit there and, and watch. <laughs> yeah. And it's fascinating with like some of the CS sometimes we were talking about the flashbang. It's like they implemented it in like real time and no one else knew about it. And sometimes in the COD scene, as soon as a spot gets found out, it's kind of hard to make game-changing like any any game-changing moment to exploit it so it's almost it just ends up everyone ends up knowing about it like someone in one of a pickup match will use it and then everyone else in the lobby knows about it versus like saving it for a major saving it for a minor which what makes it seem like that's what cloud nine did yeah and you tend to see that a lot too um like these sort of pixel boosts because on CS is not a perfect game. There's always going to be minor bugs and little areas where you could jump a little higher than you could before due to like an extra pixel being off the wall. And yeah, I find that to be crazy. The movement, like, yeah, I really don't mess with the whole like bunny hopping and like. Oh yeah, that's. Like, I feel like in every single game, someone sits there, and I think every single game I've ever played, and someone figures out exploits movement. To the point where, like, if you don't know it, you're at a huge disadvantage. Yeah. And it's even, like, I wish, like, with keyboard and mouse, like, I feel like movement's a little bit more, a little easier. Um, with controllers sometimes, like, you have to, like, like, you can't pinpoint, like, certain, you know, like, there's only so much of an axis that that stick, joystick moves on. So, like, getting those movement things down sometimes are just, like, so hard. Yeah. That's crazy, though, that they literally – it comes down to, like, they update the game, change a little – like, update it. They probably update CS, what? Like, come out with patches every once in a while, every couple weeks. Yeah, like, and people And patch. then people just, like, jump around the map looking for pixel misalignments. Oh, yeah. Like, like, the most infamous one, you've probably heard about this, too, on Overpass. This is, like, 2014 when the game first, like, it was in its, like, early years. Uh, it was a grand – it was – Grand final of a major, I think, or semifinal. And Fnatic did a triple man boost on overpass and was able to see the entire map from it. And they could just snipe down. And it's immortalized on the map with like a little graffiti. Because um, it was so like ridiculous. People did it in That's every so game. so cool. And then Valve came out and was like, yeah, this was never meant to be part of the game and fixed it. So then they like had to find a new thing to do. I do. I I always thought the boost mechanic of CS kind of like that just added a whole nother level. Oh yeah. Like the, and what we're referring to, if you don't understand, you don't play Counter Strike, because there's a way to have your player stack on top of another player, which completely changes. Like the maps weren't meant to be played with two your head being twice as high as it normally was. Yeah. And it allows for a whole nother meta of 
spots and slines of sight that weren't intended. But like, if you don't know about them or you don't have the team, the team chemistry in order to pull off some of those, you also like you have to think of the negatives of losing a player to holding one of those spots. It just it just adds a whole other dynamic that I wish I wish other games had. But I feel like other games, like I, I don't know, maybe back in the day, like Halo, you could boost, but like standing on someone else's head, I feel like just like completely changes it. Oh, I, yeah. Another example here, another tier two team. Yeah, I think in Asia this time, or Middle East, I think, they did this boost, a run boost, which is where you jump on someone's head, then you both press W at the same time, and then you jump forward, and it moves you faster than anyone can, else can move in the map, so it basically shoots you forward. And he was able to jump across a doorway without being seen, doing this <sighs> run boost, and then was able to peek out the other side and kill the guy watching the other side of the door. It, it was an insane That's so play. Epic. And it's just these type of things that these tier two teams figure out and are able to like just jump it and bait their way across the map is unbelievable. And I feel bad because like a lot of the times these teams never get the chance to break it big, which kind of brings me to yeah, my next point. You have an interesting point. point. Yeah. I was about to touch on that. The whole sustainable stay on the second tier team thing. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that. So the reason why people might be listening, why like, all right, these second tier teams, they come up with these great strategies. They win some maps. They win some upsets. Like, how come it's not, like, um, sustainable in terms of how come these teams don't almost rise up? It's because the professional teams take a look at these second-tier teams, similar to, like, real sports, and they poach the best players. Mm -hmm. So instead of having a team of five that's coming up that's very good and let's say Counter-Strike, and they're just killing it, chemistry's good, but they know they don't have the raw talent to go to that like professional, like probably next level. They might take some wins, but they can't stand it. Then one of their players will, or two of their players will get poached by a professional team. And then the other three guys are just left pretty much with clown masks on while the other two yeah. get put into the next yeah. upper echelon. Of, and of, they're of straight the out of luck. Yeah. yeah. And then it's, and CS is also interesting about how they reward like staying with the same team in terms of rankings. Yeah, like if you don't have the same three man core. I do core, like that. Yeah, I like that a lot. But then it it makes it hard for tier two teams to even break it in because then yeah. a team could do well and grind their way up to like top fifteen in the world. And this happened once. Uh, yeah, we wasn't it? I I literally heard about this about that one guy who stole the roster or stole the. Wasn't some crazy where this one guy in CS like pretty much stole the team and wouldn't give it to the other four members for some weird reason? Oh yeah, it was a I forget I know exactly what you're talking about, but he basically refused to give up the name of the team. So the other four had to like find a different organization, but they couldn't. Which loses their rank though. Like yeah, them going to a new rank. org lost their team rank on the state standings. Yeah, and it was like completely. It, it was yeah, it was just a completely messy situation, and it was like people were agreeing with the solo guy in some regards because they thought he was screwed over. But it's like, man, yeah, that's, like, that's screwed up. All right, so wait, go on. Sorry, I cut you off about. No, you're good. Uh, um, but yeah, I was saying like occasionally you get these top fifty, like these tier two teams break into the top fifteen or even top twenty even, and it's like super big because they they make a huge run, and then another org buys them out and so the that tier two organization is either left in the dust or as you said they buy out a player 
or two, and then suddenly that that team lost like their three man core, and then has and loses their entire ranking, and they're brought up to a different team, then they fall into dust. And you see that a lot with these rising stars, like uh, Stewie Two K, for example, is on Liquid now, was brought up on Cloud Nine, and then he went to MIBR, and then he went to Liquid, and he's able to stay on like this trajectory for um, for greatness. But then uh, p- players he played with along the way kind of just fell off, you know, because they tier teams, tier one teams, team hopping. and then they kind of rest them faded into the back. And I, I don't the know. Team hopping is epic. incredibly, which is the term used in these communities for uh, jumping between team to team to like go up the ladder. It was like a huge issue in the COD scene prior to franchising. Because yeah. um, franchising, it, what made it so it was more stable for these guys, like they have contracts, it's 10 times harder to trade, move players. And I like it a little bit more because in previous titles, so like Cod, of course, just went to franchising this season, but previous titles, players, every event would just be moving. Like one guy wouldn't, wouldn't play well. Another dude would say, I refuse to play this guy anymore. And then the team would break up. And that would happen to the top 12 teams that happen to like five, four or five every event. Mm-hmm. And like that whole team hopping, like culture kind of kills it a bit. And I think it makes it for the casual viewer a little bit more difficult to actually like support a team in a way. Um, you know what I mean? Like I feel like other professional yeah. sports, other, other team-based things where – these guys have been on the same teams forever, some of the big names. And the general core was pretty standard. And so every once in a while, one guy falls off, one guy comes on. But, like, sometimes the esports, there's, like, the behind the scenes and the whole organization's being bought and sold and players moving kind of ruins that. It's tough to be a fan for a team. I'm pretty. I'm trying to No, get, yeah, no, it like, makes complete sense. Like, like well, people tend to follow players instead of teams. Yeah, which is different for, yeah. for the traditional sports and in some regards. It's hard to – and it try to force it a bit, some of these, with um, the whole franchising thing, trying to make it like, oh, these teams represent, especially in Overwatch 2, like specific cities. So they try to get people behind those teams in the cities. But, like, if you have a team, let's say Dallas, and all right, like, yeah, you root for them, whatever, it's Dallas Fuel, I'm pretty sure, whatever its name is. Mm-hmm. And then four of the five guys like leave and they go to some other team. Like eighty percent of a team leaving, like in any sport, would like cripple the fan base. Oh, 100%. so I think that's something that esports has to eventually adjust to. Um, I really don't know what the solution is there. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's like kinda how I think Noah in the fighting game community, I think that's how they've kind of gotten past it. It's like, yeah, they're not really the team-based that much. And mm-hmm. it's more like, you know, single players. So maybe you could touch upon that. Like how do, how do these players get found out by orgs or if tier one orgs are able to buy out better yeah, do players? orgs have multiple players too? Cause I feel like it wouldn't be terribly profitable. Like it's almost like in Fortnite, it was a huge deal that, uh, let's say a hundred thieves owned like five or six or seven pros going into the world championship. And your odds just absolutely multiply when it comes to placings. Yeah. So, yeah. no, if you could touch a bit on the Smash, how that works with Smash. I think uh, from what I see, obviously the Smash winnings are um, abysmal compared to a lot of other of the 
not only fighting in communities, but just gaming in general. Um, But I don't know how the contracts work. I think usually you not only buy into a player, you buy into their personality. A lot of Smash pros that are signed stream. I know a lot of the things they look for is a following beforehand, not necessarily results as um, the standalone factor. So I think a lot of what Smash Bros. um, sponsors, a lot of what they look into is the influence a certain Smash Bros. player has. Um, A lot of people are on Twitch. A lot of people are on Twitter. And just whatever following you can accumulate and whatever name you can make for yourself, I feel like it's not really trying to take some of the winnings they earn. It's more of like helping spread your brand. Um, I know TSM is big in the Smash Bros. scene. Uh, I think 100 Thieves just bought out MK Leo. Um, oh, I'm not oh, really? sure about that. I, I think so. He, I know he just dropped um, his previous, um, his previous team. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, a lot of people generally buy the, the Smash Bros. players who are getting the most following um, through streaming. Not necessarily uh, the best results. There's a lot of great players that have really, really good results, but due to the fact that they're not. Um, really public with how they play Smash Bros or engaging in the community, they don't really see that many sponsors. Interesting. Yeah, something else I wanted to get into with you guys. I mean, uh, I mentioned before, like, Tier 2 Smash Bros players, a lot of it isn't really based off of raw skill when it comes to the mechanics of Smash Bros. There's a lot of people who can do some of the craziest combos um, and, and tricks in Smash Bros, but don't necessarily see the best results. Is that something that is similar in the the FPS games and stuff like that? Or, like, what would separate a Tier 1 player from a Tier 2? Is it the, the sheer aiming, uh, reaction time, or is it just so, the ability to read, call out other players, and stuff like that? So, I, for, That's a good uh, question. I'll quickly touch, quickly touch on COD. It is nothing to do with gun skill at this point. Um, I think the top, like, 30,000 players at this point in COD are equal gun skill. It's for COD, it's more of a knowing how to play the game, is how people kind of phrase it in terms of, especially I'm assuming it's something like CSGO in terms of like knowing, knowing all of the, uh, how to work with the team, knowing what like the fundamentals of COD and timings and shit that you can only really develop through repetition. And so, like, what makes the pros better than the, the amateurs is the ability to almost, like, piece it all together. Like, have the really solid gun skill, but then also have that prior team experience and the ability to know what it takes to win uh, to kind of tie it all in. And a lot of these amateurs in the COD scene have, like, very hot heads and are very stat-focused. And the stat-focused guys are the guys who get notice of it, but then as soon as they get put on good teams, they flame out pretty quickly because it's more than stats, um, and then it takes more than stats to win the game. So I think the pros almost, to some extent, don't really care as much about the statistics and care more about learning what it takes to win. And I think the amateurs are a little bit more focused on how to stand out to get to the next level, and because of that, they focus less on learning how to win the game versus like performing solo. Yeah. And that's um, touch upon that kind of how, why a uh, phase in CSGO when he first uh, came into it and went to a uh, grand finals of the major, that's kind of why they lost is that they had a team of strictly 
aim, raw skill, and like complete just fragging ability, but really no coordination or good leadership. I mean, they had the best in-game leader in the world. To get me wrong, they were gonna stomp Kerrigan. Wait, so like, how did that? I feel like that would have put it all together. Uh, it you, you feel like it should have, but every time they went to a big event after they lost the major before that they were on an upswing and this is when CSGO is kind of like in its downtime when a lot of the teams were in change up mode they were firing or releasing players and picking up new ones and phase just kept on buying superstars because they had the money to um when they reached cloud Shout nine in that major, yeah <laughs> when they reached cloud nine in that major final cloud nine had this chemistry together where they were just going off each other. You know, they were doing things where they're setting up crossfires, setting themselves up to win. Whereas FaZe was kind of running around fragging and like, you know, turning quarters, hitting headshots. Cloud9 was holding angles and flashing and smoking. They just looked like a better team and scrappier because of it. Um, and that, that holds true today. The number one team in the world, I would say they only have one superstar on their team. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because the, the team that won – like a lot of the teams in in past history for Call of Duty specifically that have won the major event, they usually have one guy that's like universally viewed as not a great player, and it's mainly because those guys are like the glue, the the guys that know the game, super strategic, like do the little things to get wins. They don't necessarily like a lot of the guys that are hyped up in esports are guys that get the most kills let's say for fps or yeah, guys, they're the ones who get the mvps that, yeah stuff. they get the mvps right so it's like normal sports like the best thing to talk about would be like a you know, football game where everyone's gonna talk about the, the quarterback winning uh the title but like the old lineman who's blocking every down and doing greedy work who doesn't really have stats is the guy who's really putting in the work who's doing something to contribute to the win that's equally as important and I think that something in what you're talking about with that team is in like they had guys that aren't necessarily known as the standouts in the scene, but they do things together that make them in like with their collaboration to be the best team. Yeah. Um, and these duds, these guys who are viewers and not duds will a lot of times internally they'll get bounced. Like a lot like they get, oh, maybe someone else could come in, bring a little bit more kills to it. And then it throws up the whole team. Uh, so that's happened sometimes with that team. But, yeah, go on, T-Gon. No, you're good. And that's a good, great point because it also makes the argument that, you know, on a five-man roster, like in CS or in League or Overwatch or six-man or COD, um, that one person who's able to be the shot caller and tend to play more passive or play more, you know, strategically is able to, is able to make them all work better. And it's also on and off the field. Um, as well or on and off the server because a lot of times a team like if you look at a team like Team Liquid right now it's Counter-Strike uh, Stewie2K I mentioned him earlier it's not what he brings on the field there are better players in North America on paper who have better stats better aim better communication better uh, management of their temper even but off apparently off the server he just does such a good job of building a community of like I want to be here he's friends with all the guys and it really See, makes them want to play well together. So then what happens with a lot of these esports, which I think is important to touch on, is the development of coaches. And uh, there's been phases in multiple esports where coaches come in and out of the scene. 
And I think a lot of those players are sometimes pushed to that role, uh, which is unfortunate. But that mm-hmm. happens a lot in COD where, like, there'll be guys that are very good but aren't, like, incredible, like, slayers in terms of kills. And they're great minds like that guy was doing. And they'll get pushed to a coaching role because they'll be like, we can get the benefit of that guy's head, but get more production on the, on the server. And I personally think that's like a flawed mindset to have. Same. Because, because you, yeah, you don't respect the guy who's not on the, on like the server. For me, yeah, it's, yeah, if you're playing a game and you're on five on five at any of these esports and someone on your, someone's giving you advice who wasn't, even if they're watching every second of the game, they're not like, you don't have a ton of confidence in what they're doing. Yeah. So like, you can always trump them because. You're actually doing the movements. You're the ones doing the movements, and you don't have a guy that if you're a guy in game. You're like, we're doing this, especially because the coaches can also talk during the game. But right. if you, if you're the shot caller and you say we're doing this, people are gonna listen to you because otherwise you like you're just going rogue on the map. Versus a coach saying you guys should be doing this, and then someone else still being in the IGL, uh, yeah. and just going over that. So. Yeah, I agree, though. I, I don't think – I, I also think coaches in esports is such a weird – Yeah. A weird thing because it's almost just, like, removes the like, – All right, so we're talking about Tier 1 versus Tier 2. Tier 2 teams don't have coaches. They don't have any of that for the most part, uh, depending on the esport. So people might think, oh, that might be a benefit for team Tier 1. But it just passes off the burden of spending time watching VODs of other other teams and learning that experience from watching other guys compete and implementing it into your own game versus what people do, especially in the COD community, is they have these coaches do. The coaches sit there and watch every other team, take notes on other teams, bring yeah. scouting reports to the team and go, hey, this is what they do. But it's very different than you yourself going up there and watching these VODs and picking up different nuance that they're doing, not just the general overarching macro strategy, but what they're actually doing in game movements, tendencies, and such. And I think it almost, it, 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 I think it's unneeded and almost is a little bit lazy for uh, players to uh, rely on as a crutch. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't take the opposite stance actually for at least fighting okay. game. Um, I feel like. Um, a lot of the issues professional players have, any player really does have is, um, and I, I mean, I, I think I, this is definitely a different setup than most um, competitive online uh, esports games is, but for for um, fighting games, you move up the ladder, basically. You start off playing somebody who maybe is not as good, and then as you move on and on, you're going to be p- playing people who are better and better. And I think a lot of the times, uh, people struggle with fighting games is because they have a tunnel vision or narrow mindset where they're making these mistakes and they're getting called out for it, but they're not really recognizing it or the opponents doing the same thing over and over again. And they haven't caught on to it yet. Uh, and the ability to have somebody that can pull you aside after a set, after a match, whenever is allowed and say, Hey, like you're jumping way too much or you're swinging way too much. Or the guy runs in and then pulls away at the last second and you're getting caught up in that. To have somebody say that to you in the moment and then you be able to go into the next set or next match with that knowledge is hugely valuable. Um, it might not be the same case for 
FPS. No, I think I think like I think you're right there. I I, I think yeah. I I glanced over that. I think having in any scenario, having a third person, it, like just having someone outside the team looking in, bringing a completely unbiased opinion to the. I think it's just the level of involvement. You know, I I think you're right. I think that when the coaches or whoever the mentors are take a viewpoint as being someone that's just going to provide unbiased opinion about it versus more of a well unbiased more like macro like what is like what you guys should be doing in general what you should generally start looking up fixing versus like actual in-game strategies so it'll be interesting to see like it's kind of hard like we're kind of like guessing about a lot of this but there isn't a lot of data or really knowledge about coaches influence yeah. because in esports, it's very different than regular sports where, like, you could see the guy on the sideline calling the plays, blah, blah, blah. In esports, coaches are generally, when they're involved, it's very off-stream, not, like – like, to be honest, I've never even seen or heard dialogue between a coach and a team in COD in this game because you just don't – unless it's some behind-the-scenes YouTube clip, you don't really see like what they're actually like how big the involvement actually is in the team. Cause there's definitely gotta be huge varying degrees of involvement. Like mm-hmm. there's gotta be some coaches that are all over the place. They're super involved. And there's gonna be some coaches where you said who are like focused more on providing more of a broad view. I, yeah, I think the biggest thing coaches can do is basically break a team or break a player out of their comfort zone. I think a lot of, players or teams kind of hit their stride where they really like, let's say this one option, they love smoking off wherever they're going to go. And they tend to not really stray from that strategy for the most part, because it works most of the time. But I feel like if you have somebody who's able to see something and say, Hey, what if you improved on here? What if you stopped doing this and mixed it up, um, break your comfort zone a little bit. I feel like that definitely helps propel players. I mean, I even have personal experience. I, um, recently streamed a tournament run I did in Smash Bros. And although nobody who was watching or viewing was a professional, they were able to see my bad habits and actually correct me mid-game, yeah. um, which you see a lot cool. of professional players even do when they stream their runs. And Sh- that shout out the stream. Me. Shout out the stream. I, uh, I stream on Twitch, Milk4. We do some Smash Bros. <laughs> and some other stuff. There's spell a it, spell it, spell it. N-O-K-E-4. Please check it out. Give it some love. Yes, sub. He makes money off of it, so um, not much. It, it's, it's, it's his main hey, source of I, income. When, when I tuned in, it was electric. Yeah, it's a lot uh, of fun, actually. Yeah, but yeah, not fun. Day, um, <laughs> we digress. Smash Bros. I mean, <laughs> I think just on one one v one games, it could sometimes feel like it's you against the world, and yeah. it's nice to have a guy there, especially if you're like the enemy or if you're like the higher rank or you're the underdog. It's always good to have a guy to bring you back to reality and be like, hey, like, you're doing great. Yeah, I don't even know what it'd be like. I give you a lot of kudos, no, because, like, playing a 1v1 eSport is just so, like, yeah. Like, for me, I really like playing, like, team, like just the twos, fours, whatever, fives, yeah. because you just get – you bounce off, like, ideas and you learn from other guys who are, like – even, like, random queuing in, like, let's say CS – like you get put with a team, you could end up joining a group of four guys that are like, uh, not really a team, but just a bunch of boys, and they could be like, "Oh yeah, we do this and it works every time on Dust 2. and then next time you play Dust Two, the bunch of randos, you you could implement that strategy, and I kind of like that, like that collaborative, like learning from other guys and building upon. Yeah. I, I don't know, it's like going by yourself throughout the whole thing. 
I, yeah, I mean, I definitely see that, but I also think in the same regard, um, like I play some fighter ga- uh, some FPS games more casually, but if I lose CSGO and I think I did pretty good, I'll blame my uh, team the, for it. The carry. You know? <laughs> yeah, Dude, it's I don't the- blame you though. Like there's nothing more disheartening in any game, like mm-hmm. any video game than like kicking ass and then someone out, like having your team just absolutely blow. Yeah, but also it's in, like, just, the same respect as well, like, even if you did great, there's obviously things you need to improve upon. When you're one-on-one in Smash Bros, you lost because of you. You know, you can blame lag, you can blame true. characters, but at the end of the day, the best thing you can do is message your opponent be like, where did I go wrong? Because obviously he knows what you did wrong because he beat you. See, I would, <laughs> and, I would, I would reply just some, some vulgar stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, I haven't come across never, that yet. But Never gonna admit really? to my I opponent. Like, <laughs> I'd be like, dude, you're just bad. Time, like I actually hopped on and played COD Ghost, which is like the title from four or five years ago. Some of the guys used to play with. Like we played some wagers. Like we played like a couple five dollar wagers mm-hmm. on it, which is like wagering five bucks. Every person lot. You know how wagers are. Mm-hmm. Um and so like after every map, both sides were just private messaging each other, just absolute trash talk. <laughs> like, gotta love that. I love it. No, there's something about like some dude calling you trash after you lose map one, and then you smoke them map two and three, and you just like you get no responses back. Like there's, and I kind of, I don't know. I, I guess it's different communities. The COD community is super toxic. I mean, at the end of the day, though, nothing beats when you kill someone or you clutch around and then you go unload your Shoot entire clip, oh. entire body, drop your gun, pick up another one, continue shooting at oh. them, maybe do a couple of t and then go defuse, plant, whatever. Yeah. Psych the defuse. No, there's, like a whole, <laughs> there's a whole – I like the mental – like those mental games a lot because, like, it actually gets people, gets people mad. Like, shooting bodies in COD at this point is, like, straight disrespect. Oh, but and, the, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it, especially amongst pros. Like, and I even, I already saw, I saw some, like, YouTube clip about some pros talking about, like, they interviewed all, a bunch of them at, like, one of the local lands. And they were just, like, yeah, it's not bad if, like, let's say in this instance, like, T-Con, I'm playing you, and you shoot my body. Because it's, like, all right, like. You know, I mean, like that's funny. Like you're my, you're my friend. Like you're shooting my body. You're letting me know, like, hey, like this is what's good. Yeah. But, like, some guy you're competing against, you don't really oh know. You just like it's the most infuriating thing. You start in the world. shooting your body. You're like, I hate this guy. Like, first off, who are you? Like, you just start, like you get so mad. Uh, yeah, I mean, Smash Bros has their own swamp button as well, well, which is just not great. <laughs> All right, I feel well, like, I think with Smash 2, you could just get, like, chain destroyed, though. Like, well, like, yeah. You're really risking it with taunting. Yeah, that, that is true. It's not like you get, like, can you toss, can you taunt, like, post-win? Um, they, so they allowed you to, at least online, you can do a little saying when you win at the end. They'll like, have okay. sayings you can pick. And, I mean, you can taunt as the person's dying, but not after <laughs> a game. That's about, uh, <laughs> that's about it, though. <laughs> Um, well, that's been almost an hour. Uh, oh, right. So, yeah. want to wrap it up? Yeah. I, was, um, I think, yeah, I think we covered I think it was a little more structured this time. Uh, still a little rambling. But, yeah, we, uh, we devolved at the end there a little bit, but it was good. Um, yeah, good yeah. Yeah, I hope right. you all enjoyed it. If you have any requests for discussions next time or for future, just let us know. Thanks.